0: Chapter 28, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 28, Destruction of Paganism, Part 2. The filial piety of the emperors themselves engaged them to proceed, with some caution and tenderness, in the reformation of the Eternal City. Those absolute monarchs acted with less regard to the prejudices of the provincials. The pious labour which had been suspended near twenty years since the death of Constantius was vigorously resumed and finally accomplished by the zeal of Theodosius. Whilst that warlike prince yet struggled with the Goths, not for the glory but for the safety of the Republic, He ventured to offend a considerable party of his subjects by some acts which might perhaps secure the protection of heaven, but which must seem rash and unseasonable in the eye of human prudence. The success of his first experiments against the pagans encouraged the pious emperor to reiterate and enforce his edicts of proscription. The same laws which had been originally published in the provinces of the east were applied, after the defeat of Maximus, to the whole extent of the western empire and every victory of the orthodox Theodosius contributed to the triumph of the Christian and Catholic faith. He attacked superstition in her most vital part by prohibiting the use of sacrifices, which he declared to be criminal as well as infamous, and if the terms of his edicts more strictly condemned the impious curiosity which examined the entrails of the victim, every subsequent explanation tended to involve in the same guilt the general practice of immolation, which essentially constituted the religion of the pagans. As the temples had been erected for the purpose of sacrifice, it was the duty of a benevolent prince to remove from his subjects the dangerous temptation of offending against the laws which he had enacted. A special commission was granted to Sunegius, the praetorian prefect of the east, and afterwards to the counts Jovius and Gaudentius, two officers of distinguished rank in the west, by which they were directed to shut the temples, to seize or destroy the instruments of idolatry, to abolish the privileges of the priests, and to confiscate the consecrated property for the benefit of the emperor of the church or of the army. Here the desolation might have stopped, and the naked edifices, which were no longer employed in the service of idolatry, might have been protected from the destructive rage of fanaticism. Many of these temples were the most splendid and beautiful monuments of Grecian architecture, and the emperor himself was interested not to deface the splendor of his own cities, or to diminish the value of his own possessions. Those stately edifices might be suffered to remain, as so many lasting trophies are the victory of Christ. In the decline of the arts, they might be usefully converted into magazines, manufactures, or places of public assembly. And perhaps, when the walls of the temple had been sufficiently purified by holy rites, The worship of the true deity might be allowed to expiate the ancient guilt of idolatry but as long as they subsisted the pagans fondly cherished the secret hope that an auspicious revolution a second julian might again restore the altars of the gods and the earnestness with which they addressed their unavailing prayers to the throne increased the zeal of the christian reformers to extirpate without mercy the root of superstition the laws of the emperors exhibit some symptoms of milder disposition but their cold and languid efforts were insufficient to stem the torrent of enthusiasm and rapine, which was conducted, or rather impelled, by the spiritual rulers of the church. In Gaul, the holy Martin, bishop of Tours, marched at the head of his faithful monks to destroy the idols, the temples, and the consecrated trees of his extensive diocese, and in the execution of this arduous task, the prudent reader will judge whether Martin was supported by the aid of miraculous powers, or of carnal weapons in syria the divine and excellent marcellus as he is styled by Theodoret, a bishop animated with apostolic fervour resolved to level with the ground the stately temples within the diocese of apamea his attack was resisted by the skill and solidity with which the temple of jupiter had been constructed the building was seated on an eminence on each of the four sides the lofty roof was supported by fifteen massy columns sixteen feet in circumference and the large stone of which they were composed were firmly cemented with lead and iron the force of the strongest and sharpest tools had been tried without effect it was found necessary to undermine the foundations of the columns which fell down as soon as the temporary wooden props had been consumed with fire and the difficulties of the enterprise are described under the allegory of a black demon who retarded though he could not defeat the operations of the christian engineers elated with victory marcellus took the field in person against the powers of darkness A numerous troop of soldiers and gladiators marched under the Episcopal banner, and he successively attacked the villages and country temples of the Diocese of Apamea. Whenever any resistance or danger was apprehended, the champion of the faith, whose lameness would not allow him either to fight or fly, placed himself at a convenient distance, beyond the reach of darts. But this prudence was the occasion of his death. He was surprised and slain by a body of exasperated rustics and the synod of the province pronounced without hesitation that the holy marcellus had sacrificed his life in the cause of god in the support of this cause the monks who rushed with tumultuous fury from the desert distinguished themselves by their zeal and diligence they deserved the enmity of the pagans and some of them might deserve the reproaches of avarice and intemperance of avarice which they gratified with holy plunder and of intemperance which they indulged at the expense of the people who foolishly admired their tattered garments loud psalmody and artificial paleness a small number of temples was protected by the fears the venality the taste or the prudence of the civil and ecclesiastical governors the temple of the celestial venus at carthage whose sacred precincts formed a circumference of two miles was judiciously converted into a christian church and a similar consecration has preserved inviolate the majestic dome of the Pantheon at Rome. But in almost every province of the Roman world, an army of fanatics without authority and without discipline invaded the peaceful inhabitants, and the ruin of the fairest structures of antiquity still displays the ravages of those barbarians who alone had time and inclination to execute such laborious destruction. In this wide and various prospect of devastation, the spectator may distinguish the ruins of the temple of Serapis at Alexandria. Serapis does not appear to have been one of the native gods or monsters who sprung from the fruitful soil of superstitious Egypt. The first of the Ptolemies had been commanded by a dream to import the mysterious stranger from the coast of Pontus, where he had been long adored by the inhabitants of Sinope, but his attributes and his reign were so imperfectly understood that it became a subject of dispute whether he represented the bright orb of day or the gloomy monarch of the subterraneous regions. The Egyptians, who were obstinately devoted to the religion of their fathers, refused to admit this foreign deity within the walls of their cities, but the obsequious priests were seduced by the liberality of the Ptolemies, submitted without resistance to the power of the god of Pontus, an honourable and domestic genealogy was provided and this fortunate usurper was introduced into the throne and bed of osiris the husband of isis and the celestial monarch of egypt alexandria which claimed his peculiar protection gloried in the name of the city of serapis his temple which rivaled the pride and magnificence of the capital was erected on the spacious summit of an artificial mount raised one hundred steps above the level of the adjacent parts of the city and the interior cavity was strongly supported by arches distributed into vaults and subterraneous apartments. The consecrated buildings were surrounded by a quadrangular portico. The stately halls and exquisite statues displayed the triumph of the arts, and the treasures of ancient learning were preserved in the famous Alexandrian library, which had arisen with new splendor from its ashes. After the edicts of Theodosius had severely prohibited the sacrifices of the pagans, They were still tolerated in the city and temple of Serapis, and this singular indulgence was imprudently ascribed to the superstitious terrors of the Christians themselves, as if they had feared to abolish those ancient rites, which could alone secure the inundations of the Nile, the harvests of Egypt, and the subsistence of Constantinople. At that time the archibishopal throne of Alexandria was filled by Theophilus, the perpetual enemy of peace and virtue, a bald, bad man, whose hands were alternately polluted with gold and with blood. His pious indignation was excited by the honors of Serapis, and the insults which he offered to an ancient temple of Bacchus convinced the pagans that he meditated a more important and dangerous enterprise. In the tumultuous capital of Egypt, the slightest provocation was sufficient to inflame a civil war. The votaries of Serapis, whose strength and numbers were much inferior to those of their antagonists, rose in arms at the instigation of the philosopher olympius who exhorted them to die in the defence of the altar of the gods these pagan fanatics fortified themselves in the temple or rather fortress of serapis repelled the besiegers by daring sallies and a resolute defence and by the inhuman cruelties which they exercised on their christian prisoners obtained the last consolation of despair the efforts of the prudent magistrate were usefully exerted for the establishment of a truce till the answer of theodosius should determine the fate of serapis the two parties assembled without arms in the principal square and the imperial rescript was publicly read but when a sentence of destruction against the idols of alexandria was pronounced the christians set out a shout of joy and exultation whilst the unfortunate pagans whose fury had given way to consternation retired with hasty and silent steps and eluded by their flight or obscurity the resentment of their enemies theophilus proceeded to demolish the temple of serapis without any other difficulties than those which he found in the weight and solidity of the materials but these obstacles proved so insuperable that he was obliged to leave the foundations and to content himself with reducing the edifice itself to a heap of rubbish a part of which was soon afterwards cleared away to make room for a church erected in honour of the christian martyrs the valuable library of alexandria was pillaged or destroyed near twenty years afterwards the appearance of the empty shelves excited the regret and indignation of every spectator whose mind was not totally darkened by religious prejudice the compositions of ancient genius so many of which have irretrievably perished might surely have been accepted from the wreck of idolatry for the amusement and instruction of succeeding ages and either the zeal or the avarice of the archbishop might have been satiated with the rich spoils which were the reward of his victory while the images and vases of gold and silver were carefully melted and those of a less valuable metal were contemptuously broken and cast into the streets theophilus labored to expose the frauds and vices of the ministers of the idols their dexterity in the management of the lodestone their secret methods of introducing a human actor into a hollow statue and their scandalous abuse of the confidence of devout husbands and unsuspecting females Charges like these may seem to deserve some degree of credit, as they are not repugnant to the crafty and interested spirit of superstition. But the same spirit is equally prone to the base practice of insulting and calumniating a fallen enemy, and our belief is naturally checked by the reflection that it is much less difficult to invent a fictitious story than to support a practical fraud. The colossal statue of Serapis was involved in the ruin of his temple and religion, a great number of plates of different metals, artificially joined together, composed the majestic figure of the deity, who touched on either side the walls of the sanctuary. The aspect of Serapis, his sitting posture, and the sceptre, which he bore in his left hand, were extremely similar to the ordinary representations of Jupiter. He was distinguished from Jupiter by the basket or bushel, which was placed on his head, and by the emblematic monster which he held in his right hand. The head and body of a serpent, branching into three tails, which were again terminated by the triple heads of a dog a lion and a wolf it was confidently affirmed that if any impious hand should dare to violate the majesty of the god the heavens and the earth would instantly return to their original chaos an intrepid soldier animated by zeal and armed with a weighty battle-axe ascended the ladder and even the christian multitude expected with some anxiety the event of the combat he aimed a vigorous stroke against the cheek of a serapis the cheek fell to the ground the thunder was still silent, and both the heavens and the earth continued to preserve their accustomed order and tranquillity. The victorious soldier repeated his blows, the huge idol was overthrown and broken in pieces, and the limbs of a Serapis were ignominiously dragged through the streets of Alexandria. His mangled carcass was burnt in the amphitheater, amidst the shouts of the populace, and many persons attributed their conversion to this discovery of the importance of their tutelar deity the popular modes of religion that propose any visible and material objects of worship have the advantage of adapting and familiarizing themselves to the senses of mankind but this advantage is counterbalanced by the various and inevitable accidents to which the faith of the idolater is exposed it is scarcely possible that in every disposition of mind he should preserve his implicit reverence for the idols or the relics with which the naked eye and the profane hand are unable to distinguish from the most common productions of art or nature and if In the hour of danger, their secret and miraculous virtue does not operate for their own preservation, he scorns the vain apologies of the priests, and justly derides the object and the folly of his superstitious attachment. After the fall of Serapis, some hopes were still entertained by the pagans that the Nile would refuse his annual supply to the impious masters of Egypt, and the extraordinary delay of the inundation seemed to announce the displeasure of the river-god but this delay was soon compensated by the rapid swell of the waters this suddenly rose to such an unusual height as to comfort the discontented party with the pleasing expectation of a deluge till the peaceful river again subsided to the well-known and fertilizing level of sixteen cubits or about thirty english feet the temples of the roman empire were deserted or destroyed but the ingenious superstition of the pagans still attempted to elude the laws of theodosius by which all sacrifices had been severely prohibited the inhabitants of the country whose conduct was less opposed to the eye of malicious curiosity disguised their religious under the appearance of convivial meetings on the days of solemn festivals they assembled in great numbers under the spreading shade of some consecrated trees sheep and oxen were slaughtered and roasted and this rural entertainment was sanctified by the use of incense and by the hymns which were sung in honour of the gods but it was alleged that as no part of the animal was made a burnt offering, as no altar was provided to receive the blood, and as the previous oblation of salt cakes and the concluding ceremony of libations were carefully omitted, these festal meetings did not involve the guests in the guilt or penalty of an illegal sacrifice. Whatever might be the truth of the facts or the merit of the distinction, these vain pretenses were swept away by the last edict of Theodosius, which inflicted a deadly wound on the superstition of the pagans. This prohibitory law is expressed in the most absolute and comprehensive terms. It is our will and pleasure, says the emperor, that none of our subjects, whether magistrates or private citizens, however exalted or however humble may be their rank and condition, shall presume, in any city or in any place, to worship an inanimate idol by the sacrifice of a guiltless victim. The act of sacrificing and the practice of divination by the entrails of a victim are declared... Without any regard to the object of the inquiry, a crime of high treason against the state which can be expiated only by the death of the guilty, the rites of pagan superstition, which might seem less bloody and atrocious, are abolished as highly injurious to the truth and honour of religion. Luminaries, garlands, frankincense, and libations of wine are specially enumerated and condemned, and the harmless claims of the domestic genius of the household gods are included in this rigorous prescription the use of any of these profane and illegal ceremonies subjects the offender to the forfeiture of the house or estate where they have been performed and if he has artfully chosen the property of another for the scene of his impiety he is compelled to discharge without delay a heavy fine of twenty-five pounds of gold or more than one thousand pounds sterling a fine not less considerable is imposed on the connivance of the secret enemies of religion who shall neglect the duty of their respective stations Either to reveal or to punish the guilt of idolatry. Such was the persecuting spirit of the laws of Theodosius, which were repeatedly enforced by his sons and grandsons, with the loud and unanimous applause of the Christian world. End of chapter 28, part 2. Recording by Helsingfors, Finland.